Hello and welcome to 20 to 1, a brand new podcast that explores the lives of accomplished individuals with me, Josiah Senu, your host. In each episode, I aim to uncover the tips, tricks and insights that have made my guests pioneers in their field, all in 20 questions. So now it's time to welcome Adam Wagner. Adam is a human rights barrister at Doughty Street Chambers, founder of the award-winning charity Each Other, the UK Human Rights Blog, and the Better Human Podcast. Adam is currently one of the most sought-after legal commentators and gives real meaning to the public in Public Lawyer. It was Sky News yesterday, it was the BBC this morning, and now we've managed to get you on 20 to 1. Adam, it's an absolute honour for me to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Josiah. So Adam, you're absolutely a a superstar. Um, You're an experienced human rights barrister. You founded a charity, a blog, a podcast. You're always in the news. Um, It's truly, truly quite impressive. But I guess looking at you from a distance and seeing all the things that you've done, I can't help but ask, do you see yourself as a barrister, an entrepreneur, or is it more two for the price of one? That's a great, great question, and it sort of gets to the heart of uh, of what I'm up to in my strange career. Um, I, to be honest, I, I've, I think it's both, um, I've, and I always wanted to it to be both, um, but I never really quite understood that. I suppose um, I, it was always an instinct. I, I wanted to be um, your your description of, of a public lawyer. That's exactly right. I, I say that quite often that I think of myself as a public lawyer in both senses of the word, that I, I practice in public and administrative law. Um, so I'm a public lawyer in that sense, you know, in the textbook sense. But also, I, I always wanted to be a lawyer in public. So somebody who could explain and also promote, particularly human rights law, um, in a way which you know, d- d- people could understand and would bring people, bring people in. To what I think is a really important area of law that isn't well understood or hasn't been well understood, and you know it makes our society better um, and should be promoted. Needs to be out there, and um, you know should needs to be successful. And I guess that's a theme that's run throughout everything that you've done. Um, uh, this idea of promoting human rights through different mediums. So, so what challenges then did you face um, when you sort of start a project? Um, you, you've done the charity, you've done the blog, done the podcast, and all they they all seem to be different meanings of achieving the same outcome. So, I guess what challenges do you do you face when you're thinking about the different avenues you take? Well, I mean, it's for quite a lot of my career, it was quite a challenge to try and maintain those two identities, as it were. And I did see them for a very long time as two identities that didn't always marry up together and actually could conflict with each other. And that was really quite difficult. Um, I'll give you an example. When when I started out, so I did my pupillage in 2008-9, so I guess 13 years ago. Um, I was I was at a chambers, one crown office row, where um, there, there was a lot of public law going on, but only really government work, only public authority work. And I I set up the UK Human Rights Blog while I was a pupil, um, and it launched I think just as we as as I became a tenant. So uh, it was something I was I've always been quite techie. I've always been um, very interested in in design and in um, in 
the blogging came really sort of naturally to me. Um, but at the time, it was seen as a very strange thing for a lawyer to do, very um, and, and quite risky as well, because why would you put yourself out um, in a way, especially if you're, you're a pupil or a very new tenant and nobody knows who you are? Why would you risk people you know, writing something that's wrong? or making a fool of yourself, um, as so many people have on social media, <laughs> me, me included. Um, and, and, and it was, I remember standing up at the Chambers meeting where, where it was my first Chambers meeting, practically nobody knew who I was. Um, and I sort of said, hi, I'm Adam, I'm a new tenant. I've got an idea for a blog. Um, and I showed them a couple of other Chambers blogs that had just been set up, I think that Matrix and 11KBW on different areas of law. And I said, look, we there isn't a human rights blog, but this is this is the next thing. This is the thing that's going to people are going to be reading this more than the newspapers, um, and we could be at the front of it. Um, and, and in my mind as well, I was thinking, well, well, I could um, learn about human rights law. I could, you know, um, it would give me an outlet for something which I really wanted to do, and maybe I couldn't necessarily find, particularly as a very junior tenant. And um, and 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 people looked at it and said, well what harm can it do kind of thing, although they were a bit amused by it all. Um, but it took off really quickly. Um, but as it took off, it took off so quickly. I mean, within a year, it was being, you know, there were, we were being syndicated in The Guardian. Um, the art, We had a sort of arrangement with The Guardian. We were getting very into the idea of legal blogging. And there was um, there was, was public scandals that, that focused on human rights law um, around Abu Qatada, the, the cleric who was being deported, and the... Um, Cat Gate, which was the, the when the Prime Minister, sorry, the Home Secretary at the time, Theresa May, stood up and talked about reforming the Human Rights Act um, uh, because of the the man who, and I'm not making this up, she said, um, couldn't be deported because he had a pet cat. And all of a sudden, there was, there was you know, it became a, a, a real sort of currency to be a barrister commenting on this stuff because people, you know, rightly or wrongly, trust barristers more than they trust government ministers. And I, and I always, my, the principle I had for the human rights blog was always, I mean, and there were four rules for writing for the human rights blog when I edited it, which was, um, I'll try and remember these, um, plain English, so no, no legalese, um, always, always quote primary sources, so never, never quote, for, you know, if, if, if you're, if you're using a, if you, if you're quoting a statute, um, if you're looking, you know, if you're talking about a statute, don't. Don't quote from a judgment which quotes from the statute, or even worse, a press article. Go to the source, and then and then hype, and the third rule was hyperlink everything so that people could check your sources. Um, and the fourth rule was a uh, short paragraphs was the fourth rule <laughs> because that was that was my you know it, it just all sort of basic you know journal, journalistic uh, rules I guess. But it allowed it, it allowed people to check everything that we were doing and, and comment, and that was the point of blogging. That was why blogging was so revolutionary um but it became such a big deal that um, suddenly there was all this attention coming on it and, and i remember um, i was acting in um a well, i won't say what, what it was but i was acting in sort of big government case um and i remember one of the senior lawyers said to me at a thing that we were having you know sort of in a quite sort of offhand way said well you know um Sometimes being working for the government means not putting everything you say on, you know, on, on a blog because we're not allowed to comment, you know, and it was quite a sort of pointed comment and it was from a senior person. And it made me really think, you know, step back and think, you know, I, I, I guess I've been sort of got carried away with all this thinking it was all 
or all could just be married together. And, at the t- and then I realized, well, you know, this might be actually quite, start to get quite uncomfortable. Um, so that, that, I mean, that was quite a long time ago now, but it, it did lead me to, well, I guess eventually move chambers was a very important part of, of my career to Doughty Street, but also stop doing government work because I just felt like it was just too uncomfortable being in that, um, being in big, more important government cases and at the same time not being able to, um, like being doing the sort of public stuff that I did. Really insightful, actually, because um, it just made me start to think that in your view then, is being a successful barrister more than just the advocacy? Is it fundamentally a lifestyle? Um, I think it depends. Um, and, and I'm very wary of saying, you know, when, I, when I talk to students about um, you know, on career days, I usually start by saying, look, don't, don't look to replicate what I do because it's a bit, first of all, I've got a very odd career, like as in a very, I've done a very unusual mix of things. And second of all, don't expect you have to do all these things to be a successful barrister because you absolutely don't. It's not a very, you know, creating a blog or, or taking effectively three years off to make, to build a charity, a human rights public communications charity is not a very efficient way of promoting yourself, you're probably easy just to take a few solicitors out for lunch and, you know, work really hard and, and make sure they know who you are. Um, that's, 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 that's a very co- much more cost effective. Um, and in fact, it costs me a lot to do the things that I've done. Um, but so I don't think it's, it, you need to do all of those things, but it, it's what I needed to do. It's, you know, it's where it's, it's how I fulfill my own urges. Um, like you, you talked about entrepreneurialism. I'm, I'm a very, as you probably tell, I'm a very entrepreneurial person and I like, um, I, I like creating things. I like, I love creating a charity. I, you know, I, I love doing a podcast and blog and media stuff. And, and I've always, as my wife will tell you, I've always, you know, I'm always on to the next project. You know, that's my, that's my sort of, uh, that's my temperament. Um, and that's great for me and that fulfills something inside of me, but I don't think it's necessarily, um, something which, a barrister has to do um but i mean I, I definitely feel like the last few years for the first time going back to your original question I, I feel like those all those different elements are combining for me and and can work together rather than working against each other yeah that's so interesting um that you know there's a momentum behind everything that you do um and then i guess with that momentum and with you moving on from project to project and it fulfilling you in that way, then, then how do you define success for you? What, what makes you feel at the end of a project, I've, I've done this really well, it's time to move on? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, well, if you look at the UK Human Rights blog, which I'm really proud of, after you know, four years ago, I left that. You know, I, I, le- I left it with, with one crown office row when I left because I, I, didn't, I thought it would have been wrong to try and take it with me or something like, like that. I thought that would have been you know, ethically wrong because it was the one crown office row brand that had been part of its success. You know, and, and I had hitched onto that in a way. So I, f- I felt like the right thing to do was to leave it with a very, um, very capable editorial team at one crown office row. And, and, it, and it goes from strength to strength. And it's a great project. It's a great legal education project that, um, that benefits the people who write for it and the people who read it. And it's also become, it's 10 years old, it's become an amazing resource looking back um, to, to, to tra- trace important cases through the different stages. Um, really good, high quality 
commentary, but it's got absolutely nothing to do with me anymore. Um, and it hasn't for four years. So that for me is a, is a success. I've, I, I, I grew it, um, with, with, um, Rosalind English, who was, who was my co-editor and Angus McCulloch, you see, who was, who was a sort of co-editor as well. And, and I put my heart and soul into it. And now I can, I've left it behind. Um, and it, and it's growing up on, on its own. Um, and equally, you know, each other, which is the charity I set up, which used to be rights info. Um, I directed it. I sort of took time off from the bar to direct it, I guess, half or two thirds of my time for it for a few years. And I now chair the board. It runs, it's got a team, it's got an executive team, it's got a chief executive, there's a, there's five employees, um, it's got a team of volunteers and it works great without me. Um, and I just, you know, steer from, from a distance. And that's what, again, for me, that's a success. And it allows me also to, um, focus on my legal work and, and doing other things if I, if I, if the, the fancy sort of strikes. No, that that's incredibly impressive. You know, there's so much that you've done, Adam. But I, I guess, in many ways, it wouldn't be right if we were if we didn't talk about COVID. Um, it's had extraordinary consequences uh, for many people, including yourself. And I think it's uh, quite fair to say that as the man who's keeping the government's receipts on changing COVID regulation, um, you've become the go-to expert on on the issue. Um, but I guess for me, the really interesting thing is that you were speaking with Sally Penny. Uh, recently on her podcast and said that, you know, your meteoric rise in the public consciousness has come about as, as a result of 10 to 12 years of concerted effort, research and diligence as a human rights barrister, you know, doing the hard yards on Twitter and blogging since you were a pupil and, and much more. Um, and I noticed that it's a, as a trait, as the, I guess the theme of, of this, our conversation has been of, of entrepreneurs, um, this compounding effect of pursuing a way of being relentlessly. Um, would, would you say that that's, that's been fundamental to, to your career so far? Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, I, I'm going to agree with myself. Uh, <laughs> on the other podcast. It, it's, uh, I feel like I have put in the hard yards. You know, I spent I spent ten years building public my, the public trust in in what I said, um, and I was pretty. You know, obviously I made mistakes, and and anybody in the public realm and on social media especially makes mistakes. But I feel like you know I kept to certain prince, basic principles. You know, that, that were very important to me as a junior, very junior barrister. First of all. Um, not like researching what I said, and it sounds kind of silly, but just trying not to shoot from the hip and actually trying to understand the law before I start started tweeting about it. And 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 I think the that was I was particularly frightened of. Um, you know, I, there was there was a certain point after a couple of years when I'd start to go into court, and a judge would say, oh, "I read what you said on Twitter," um, and and that started to really frighten me. Although I knew I knew that was going to happen. It was obvious to me where Twitter was going. You know, every, people were joining sort of exponentially lawyers. Um, and and, and I, my, my rule has always been, don't tweet anything you wouldn't want a judge to read in one of your cases. Don't tweet anything you wouldn't want your mum to read. Um, and, 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 and now, since I've had children, don't tweet anything I wouldn't want my children to read. Um, and, and, and that keeps me, you know, keeps me on the straight and narrow. You know, try and be legally accurate if you're talking about the law. Um, and if, and show you working and don't be, don't be rude or mean to people. Uh, and that's always been just like an essential point for me. Like never go for, never go for the person. 
Um, even even if it's punching up, you know, just don't don't do it because it's. Um, I just I just hate it. I, you know, I, I argue for a living. That's what I do, and I I don't want to be arguing um, online and getting into these squabbles and and um, feeling like I'm, I'm I'm losing control of my emotions when I'm doing it, which can can mean looking a bit. Um, sometimes like you're trying to be above the fray or, you know, not, not getting stuck in and that sort of thing on particular issues. But as a lawyer, I think, and as a barrister, especially, you know, I'm self-employed. Um, I've got a responsibility under my own professional code. I, I try and keep a sort of basic level. Um, and I feel like when the pandemic hit, um, it wasn't like I just came out of nowhere and started commenting on COVID rules. I've been doing that. I've been, commenting on the law, doing it exactly the way I did it over COVID rules, you know, showing people what what things meant and, and showing them actually showing them how to do it for themselves, like go to the basic, go to the laws themselves. That I could that I had this existing profile that I could um use to try and help people understand these laws all of a sudden, you know, most people don't come into contact with laws directly ever. They're a bit like um it's a bit like uh, internal organs. You know, you don't, you don't, you know, you have a heart and lungs and, 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 and a spleen or whatever, but it's only if you have the bad luck of, of having to have an operation on, on, on those or having something go wrong that you really know that you've got a heart or a lung or spleen in a non-theoretical way. And I think that with COVID, it was the same with laws. Like most people, yes, we, we come into contact with laws all the time, but we, we don't know we're coming into contact with laws. We just sort of, you know, we, we pay taxes or we don't steal or, you know, those sorts of things. But we, we just do it instinctively. We don't come into contact with these this sort of dirty, nitty-gritty of laws. Um, or certainly not the kind of, not the majority of the population. I know there are certain parts of the population, like, you know, the people who are, you know, whether they're in prison or they're, um, or they're poor, so they're going to have to, come into contact with social security or they're going to, or they're a, a, an illegal immigrant or they're just, you know, an asylum seeker. So they're coming into contact with those laws. Yes, there are those people, but for most people, the COVID laws were the first time they'd ever really um, been directly impacted in a way that they could tangibly feel. And I guess, um, you know, you've in many ways lived a, a life of principle. I think there, there seemed, there seemed to be really clear um, ideas behind everything you do. And I can't help but think that maybe you learned those growing up. Um, how influential were your parents to, um, I guess, the path that you've taken today? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to um, come across too much of a, of a sort of, uh, uh, what's the right word, self-righteously. <laughs> because, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 I'm probably as principled as, as anybody else. Um, but I do try um, and, and, and live by principle, when, you know, as much as I can. Um, well, I grew up in a, in a, in a, in a really lovely family, my, you know, my, in a, in a stable family. Um, my parents, you know, and, and were very, were always there for me. Um, I had a good sort of good value. So we were very involved. We've always been very involved in the Jewish community. I've always been very involved in the Jewish community. And I come from a family where that was, um, an important part of life, although we weren't particularly religious, but um, like a lot of um, Jewish people, we were we were observant without being religious, um, which sounds a bit strange. But we would go to synagogue. Um, I'd always sit with my my grandpa, who was a very um, influential figure in my life. He was um, he was a labour councillor for for decades, um, 
in Manchester, and he was actually the mayor of Manchester when, um, in the seventies, and he was a sort of big local figure and, and, a, and a real sort of larger than life character, and he was a very big influence on me. Um, but you know, I, I also grew up. Um, I went through a, a Jewish youth movement, um, which was a sort of a socialist youth movement that um, has existed for almost a hundred years, and is a very sort of um, was a very big deal in my in my upbringing um, to the extent that I was you know I'd go on the activities and then I would be I was a leader and then I became a, I ran the movement um, when I finished university for a year so I was kind of that, that was a big that though that sort of those principles were very important to me of, of social action of sort of making a difference in the world was a very big big and important part of my of my life. And I think it's really amazing that we have characters like you at the bar who I think social action is is a way of living. It's it's the way you you've grown up. Um, and I've seen it. You've seen I've seen the work that you've done um, with regards to the Labour Party on anti-Semitism. Um, and it, clearly, you take a lot of pride in your in your Jewish heritage. So, would you say that we're now in an era where people can feel more open about who they are and what they stand for at the bar? That's a really good question. I mean, the, the anti-Semitism um, in the Labour Party was a very important um, was a very important, important period for me, um, both sort of personally and professionally. It was the first time I'd got involved in an issue professionally, which was so deeply and closely connected to me. Um, I spoke about my grandfather. You know, my grandfather was a, was a very proud Labour Party member, but he he left. In the um, he left at the end of his political career. He he, he left and joined the, the SDP, which was the sort of um, the Social Democratic Party, which is sort of a it was a um, outshoot um, of some Labour, prominent Labour politicians who uh, the same sort of issue arose as in the Corbyn days, as as in the party moved um, to the, the far left was moving, and it became quite uncomfortable for Jewish people, um, and I think that. You know, seeing that history repeat itself was very um, frightening for me. Um, it was something that, and, and I mentioned that I've been—I grew up in a socialist Jewish youth movement, so it's not as if I'm—I've um, uh, not been—I'm um, not ignorant of socialism or of the kind of socialism which um, you know. There's, there's a million different kinds of socialism. You can guarantee in, in any socialist setting they'll all be arguing with each other because that's just what. You know, that's just the nature of the left, and it always has been. Certainly was in, in the movement I was in. Um, but it was very worrying for me to see what was happening. Um, it was obvious also that I could play a role in helping resolve it. You know, I, I did that through, I met with lots of people um, who were involved um, in, inside the Labour Party, including in Corbyn's office. I tried to sort of do a public explanatory um, role in, in, in it, which sort of crossed across from legal to um, personal. And then eventually, because I just felt like it wasn't going to work, um, it, I was involved in getting the Equality and Human Rights Commission to come and investigate, which they did. Um, and then through that investigation, and it was a very, um, it was a very strange and interesting experience. It was, it, it, I was playing a publicly prominent role while also playing a legal role, um, which eventually um, resulted in the Equality and Human Rights Commission report and Jeremy Corbyn being suspended, and, and that still you know, is ongoing. Um, but does it mean that barristers are playing a more public role um, or can play a more public role? 
I think there's always been barristers who play a pump, who, who do that sort of role, who play a sort of public prominent role. If I look in my own chambers, you know, people like Jeffrey Robertson, QC, or, 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 or Helena Kennedy, QC, who are two of the or, or original versions of that model. Um, and certainly I read both of their books when I was studying for the bar and I, and I just, you know, I mean, I remember thinking, well, this isn't something that I could ever achieve or, or even hope for to get to that level um, and to be that involved. They were criminal lawyers, um, which I wasn't going for. I was going for the rights law. But I imagine if they were um, if they, they were around at the time I was around, they probably would have been human rights lawyers. So I, I don't know. Um, it's, um, it, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can speak for, for, for the bar. The bar, social media has given everyone a platform that didn't have a platform before. That can be good for barristers and it can be bad for barristers because we can make fools of ourselves or, or bring the profession to, to disrepute or get into arguments with each other publicly, which just I don't think helps anybody um, when they get personal and things get personal really quickly. So I think it's a, um, look, the thing about the bar is we're self-employed generally, not everybody, but generally. And when you're self-employed, you can, you can take stands on things. You can build a, a public brand I use that word, um, and I know people might not like me using that word, but it's what it is. You can build a public persona, which you can't if you're a, a member of, you know, if you work for a solicitor's firm or you are a member of the government or, you know, you're a public official. Um, not because you, you know, it's not possible, but because it's not desirable for your institution, for you to be um, separate from the institution in your sort of public face. So I think that's that it does give rise to opportunities and it also gives rise to risks. And I guess if you're this individual, um, and I guess being self-employed, if the, the importance of the public persona or a persona, um, and you've seen the evolution of the bar and, and, and in different ways and different areas, uh, why would you say that, I guess, the diversity of experiences, diversity representation is lagging behind in a profession whereby it should, in many ways, be promoting it? I think that there's, a, there's a few reasons for that. Um, and again, there'll be other people who are better placed to comment than me. But my, my sense is it's just a really, still a really old-fashioned profession. Um, with very strange customs and rules and, and institutions um, like the inns, for example, which is just bizarre. Um, I, you know, I like the inns in certain ways that they that they do a lot of good in terms of f financial help, particularly for students. Which is going to, if you're going to help increase diversity, um, paying for people's studies is a huge part of that. It's a huge barrier to entry for a lot of people from less advantaged backgrounds. But still, they're like you know they are basically like Oxford or Cambridge colleges transported to London and, you know, the dinners, you know, the black tie dinners, this, I, I was personally, you know, I come from a sort of middle-class background. I come from Manchester. I went to a, a state primary in a private um, secondary school. I'm, I'm white. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a very, I'm very privileged to put it that way, relatively speaking to, to lots of people. I went to Oxford, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm you know, for me, it should have been really easy. It actually wasn't. Um, I found it really difficult to get a pupillage. It took me a couple of years. And I also felt, actually, you know, I went to Oxford. I, I felt really uncomfortable with all the in stuff. Um, I, I just felt, you know, and, and all the sort of toadying and the, um, and the strange 
way that barristers talk. And, you know, I didn't, I, 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 I've got, you know, I come from a, from a relatively privileged background. I didn't know any barristers growing up. I didn't know any in London. Um, so it was still a bit of a surprise. Um, and, and if I find, you know, if, if, me, if I, from my background, um, found it strange and, and uncomfortable and, you know, like, like icky, like I just wanted to get it over with, you know, what it must be like from people who come from, uh, you know, more diverse backgrounds who, you know, who've never, met, perhaps never met a lawyer, who are the first person to go to university in their family. You know, it, it's kind of, and, and people wonder why the bar is, is not more diverse. I, I think, I, I think there's a real disconnect. There's a sort of dissonance between people saying, well, look, the ends of court, you know, they are great for, for education. They are great for you know, helping people up, up the ladder. But they still have this real English upper class feel to them um, that they are relics of the of, of another age that don't exist in other professions. And, and, and I do think while, unless the bar changes it's you know while the bar is still like that and it looks like it looked like in dickens times i mean you know my chambers is oddly enough i, I it's I, I my my room is right opposite from dickens's old house on Downing street but actually we're not in the inn the, 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 the we're not in the temple or one of the inns of court we're out in i don't know where we are between gray's inn and king's cross and and i really like not being in the temple i was in the temple for eight years i found it really stultifying and it, you know i don't that's not what i enjoy um, and I think that while the bar is still wedded to all the traditions and the um, and the fustiness and the uh, the language and the hierarchy, and it's so hierarchical, I think it will be an uncomfortable place for people from different backgrounds to the to the quiet, you know, the the, the majority who are still white, Oxbridge educated, you know, probably quite advantaged in their backgrounds, um, like me, you know, and I, and I don't shy away from that. So I guess that's a long way of saying, I think the bar has a long way to go. No, thank, thank you so much for, I guess, such a candid and, and sincere answer. And I suppose it's pupillage season for, for many out there. Um, and your experiences, I guess, um, with looking for pupillage, what advice would you be able to give to students um, who uh, maybe come from difficult backgrounds, disadvantaged backgrounds, or um, they're, they're trying really hard to get pupillage and they've tried off the many, many rounds and they're unable to do so? What, what words would you have for, um, I guess, these groups of students, this group of students who want a career at the bar and really think they can bring their experiences um, to the fore? And it's tough. It's really tough. I said that, I, you know, I, I, it took me two years to find a pupillage. I got one pupillage offer. I was a reserve. Um, it wasn't really the chambers that I wanted to go to, but it was it was certainly a good chambers and I was really proud and happy to, to be there. It's always a tension between saying to people, look, stick with it because, you know, if you believe in yourself and you really want this, then eventually it'll come to you. And, and, and being realistic about the fact that there are probably a hundred pupilish places for every 200 able and adequate candidates. Um, and a lot will come down to luck because of that, because there aren't enough pupilish places and there are too many candidates. I don't mean too many uh, candidates overall, but too many actually, too many good enough candidates who could you know do the job and could be in those chambers. So I think there is an element of it, it's, it's tough. I guess 
my, my advice to people is always try and get practical experience because that's what I think got me a pupil interest B is doing the free representation units. Um, I did um, at my at BPP where I was doing my um, bar course, I did, um, I represented clients at the um, leasehold tribunal, you know, sort of leasehold disputes. And, and both of those experiences, doing social security hearings and doing leasehold disputes, were just, you know, that's that's the job. That You know, you're actually experiencing the job. It's exactly what you'd be doing as a junior barrister. Um, and it's great to be able to talk about an interview. It actually gives you a sense of what it will feel like to be doing the job. So that I, when I look at applications, I, I put that above, you know, even really good work experience at, you know, the United Nations or in the prime minister's office. Although, you know, sometimes it makes me think, well, if this person's done work experience in the prime minister's office, is that because they are a really amazing person or is it because one of their parents knows someone who works in the prime minister's office? In which case, what have they actually achieved? Um, I, you know, I, I think there is, People have worked in charities who have um, got experience, you know, in asylum tribunals or in um, or in uh, social security, that sort of thing. I, I, I think that's really fantastic experience, and and it can lead to lots of opportunities. That that that's really useful advice. I think I think so many people are going to take that to, to, to heart, including m- myself and principals. So to always take away. And I know you're extraordinarily busy, um, Adam, and I don't want to take too much more of your of your time. But I have two two final questions. I've got I've got to ask um, this one um, because it's a question that everyone's asking. Um, so was the prime minister's birthday party against the law then? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, I, I think it was as I've been you know, banging on about um, this morning um, as we're recording this, that I think if you're going to have a social gathering, pre-arranged social gathering for a, for a birthday, yeah, that was against the law. I don't see how, I don't see why it wouldn't be against the law. It just um, seems it seems pretty straightforward if someone had asked me at the time, can we do that? And I would have said no. My final question then um uh, you know, Adam. You, you, you know, you're, you're you're clearly an individual who doesn't stand still. You're constantly moving. You're constantly engaged with with young people, um, with more senior members of the, the bar and judiciary. Um, you're always involved in something new and innovative, and it's an incredibly humbling experience for me to be able to talk to you. Um, but I, I'm curious, and, and I'm and I would love a scoop if possible. But what's the next cool Adam Wagner project? <laughs> um, well, I mean. I, I think I think I'd like to write a book um, next. Um, I'd, I'd really like to write something on the last two years um, and the relationship between these bizarre laws, which may end up bringing down the prime minister and our everyday lives. Um, I think I feel like I've sort of built up this ridiculous knowledge base that, uh, that nobody else has, and not because it's some wonderful skill, but rather just because I've obsessed over it um, over the last two years. Um, and I'd quite like to put that down. But, you know, watch this space. I, I don't know. See if anybody wants me to write it. Oh, awesome. I, I think I'll be probably be the first one to, to go to the bookstore and pick it up. Um, <laughs> I'll hold you to that. <laughs> awesome. No, thank you so much, Adam. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on, on the podcast. Um, it, it was a real uh, in, honor for me to, to learn so much. Thank you, Design. I was really, um, really grateful to for, for the invitation and um, thank you for all the kind words. And that was 20 to 1. For more insights from this episode and others, make sure to subscribe to the monthly newsletter at 20to1.com. 
And if you like this podcast, make sure to rate it on Spotify. With that, there's nothing left to do than to say thank you, goodbye, and see you soon.